Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize my voice and or face from Franklin Covey's other weekly podcast, now the world's largest podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership called On Leadership with Scott Miller that airs every Tuesdays and Fridays. So Franklin Covey now has three weekly podcasts on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Joining us today from the C-suite is Pat Gelsinger. You know him as the CEO of, I don't know, the small company, Intel. Joining us from his home on the West Coast, Pat, welcome to C-suite Conversations. Thank you, Scott, and great to be able to join you all today. Pat, great to see you. You've, you've recognized you're a little bit under the weather, recovering from a cold, so we'll forgive a cough or a sneeze along the way. Appreciate you investing in our listeners and our viewers today. Pat, I always like to start these interviews with a rewind of someone's career journey because I think everybody finds it fascinating to know how people either took a linear path or a serendipitous path to where they are, especially as the CEO of Intel. Would you rewind as early as it makes sense to talk about your education and your career journey? I know you had a, um, you had a revisit to Intel, so maybe talk about how you came back and would love to hear about that journey. Very good. Well, I, I would have uh, the uh, the simple summary would be mine was uh, anything but an expected path to the C-suite. I'm a farm kid from Pennsylvania, and uh, all my uncles and so on were farmers. My dad was the young ninth of ten. He never had his own farm. I accidentally uh, took a scholarship exam, skipped my last year and a half of high school, got an associate's degree, and Intel hired me as a technician at 18 years old. So here I am, farm kid, moving to the West Coast to start working for Intel as a uh, technician and uh, finished my bachelor's, master's, was working on PhD, all while working full-time for Intel. So I had the cheapest, most expensive education and uh, resigned from Intel to go finish my PhD at Stanford. And uh, the CEO, Andy Grove, said, you can go there and learn the simulator or you can stay here and fly the jet. And uh, he made me, he offered me the job of becoming the 46 design manager. So literally I'm 24 years old, being offered the opportunity to run what arguably is the most important chip project in the in industry at the time. And that's the 46 so poster, which is right behind me here. And, uh, you know, that was really sort of this major launching point in my career. You know, I went on to be I'm the first CTO for Intel, you know, chief technology officer, helped to create PCIe, USB, Wi-Fi. You know, when my uh, daughter, granddaughter plugs in a USB stick, she says, thank you, Papa. So, you know, pretty unique uh, uh, range. So that was the first 30 years, you know, became, uh, you know, senior executive in Intel. Then I was pushed out of the company and uh, took what I call an 11-year vacation you know, became CEO of a major software company, VMware, and uh, two years ago came back to uh, restore the iconic Intel to its position of technology leadership and uh, start driving supply chains worldwide back to American and Western manufacturing and really you know, lead not just Intel, but the resurgence of the semiconductor industry overall. So a pretty enormous assignment and uh, one that uh, I feel God's prepared me for all uh, 40 plus years of my career. Pat, what an amazing journey. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the whole reshoring initiative of chips and what that <coughs> means for not just the American economy, but the global supply chain. Before we go there, no one doesn't know the name Intel, but my sense is many of us kind of view it as, you know, 
the company that the company hired whose products we use. Will you maybe give us a master class in what exactly Intel specializes in? Yeah, and you know, the core products for Intel are chips, you know, and in particular microprocessor chips. You know, if you think about personal computers, Intel chips. If you think about clouds like Amazon, Google, Microsoft clouds, those are primarily Intel chips. But increasingly our chips are found in automobiles. Uh, you know, if you go uh, to Verizon networks, you know, it's our chips that are increasingly sitting in the network that are running, you know, the 5G uh, services. Uh, you know, if you go into a Chipotle, right, and who's running the cameras that are making sure that the food bins are full, those are Intel chips. So a broad range of uh, semiconductor components. And, you know, as I like to say, you know, what aspect of your life isn't becoming more digital? And the answer, of course, is everything, you know, you know, my car, my light bulb, my, you know, uh, a thermostat, you know, every aspect of human existence is becoming more digital. Everything digital runs on chips and those chips, those semiconductor chips are, you know, increasingly the center of uh, what Intel and the industry does. And we all saw painfully as we went through COVID what it means when we don't have enough chips. So, Pat, well, let's address that. Will you kind of give the gravity of the challenge so that all of our listeners can appreciate why it's so important to you and to perhaps as American citizens, even though this is a global podcast, why it is important to reshore, if you will, chip production back into the U.S.? And honestly, what are the implications in terms of geopolitical implications in cost of goods and human labor and the cost of chips? And I'm sure it's less expensive to manufacture chips and uh, perhaps an Asian country than it is in the U.S. Talk about the complexity of all of that and why you're choosing to do that and what kind of progress you're making. Yeah, and, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to this. One is, you know, this industry was born in the United States and in uh, the Western countries. And if we were here in 1990, 80% of all world chips would have been manufactured in U.S. and Europe. Today, that's 20%. So what happened over the last 30 years, right, that all of this moved? And as I like to say, the, you know, Congress never voted to get rid of this industry, but the Congresses of Taiwan, Korea, Japan voted to get these industries. And so we've seen this major migration uh, to the Asian countries. And with that, you know, boy, that's huge loss of jobs. And as we've clearly seen through COVID, you know, this is foundational to everything. As I like to say, the uh, uh, location of the oil reserves has defined geopolitics for the last five decades. Where the technology supply chains are is more important for the next five decades. You know, we can't move oil reserves, but we can choose to build our manufacturing and supply chain for semiconductors where we want them. And that was the nexus behind, and I've been super involved in the U.S. CHIPS Act as well as the EU CHIPS Act to help create the incentives to drive the rebalancing of the world's supply chains. And there's a, you know, a lot of this has been driven, and there's a recent book by Chris Miller called Chip War, and uh, that book chronicles, you know, this, I'll say, this love affair between companies like TSMC and Taiwan. Right, a long-term industrial policy effort, you know, similarly in Korea and Japan, and very much so in China, that has driven this industry formation and the industries that surround it uh, in Asia. 
And that is exactly what CHIPS Act is designed to do, is to create a rebalancing of those supply chains and to help offset some of the industrial policies that have been in place in these Asian countries for the last uh, 30 years. What I'll say is, hey, you know, one of the proudest days of my time as the CEO of Intel was when I got to stand, you know, with the president on the West Lawn in September of last year for the signing of the CHIPS Act. And uh, what I would argue is the most, you know, significant piece of industrial policy legislation in the United States since World War II, right? And that is now underway. You know, and since that uh, process got started, you know, we've seen five major uh, announcements of uh, chip manufacturing in the U.S., two by Intel, one by TSMC, one by Samsung, and uh, one by uh, Micron. So, hey, you know, we're starting to see that movement. And uh, when we started this work, uh, you know, there was like 90% dependency of leading edge chips by in Taiwan. Today, that number is like 75%. You know, so we're starting to see those movements in the right uh, direction, but we have a long way to go. You know, this took three decades for these supply chains to sediment in Asia. It will take a number of years for them to rebalance across the world, but I'm satisfied that we're making progress. The most significant piece of industrial policy legislation, you know, when I got to uh, stand with the president in Ohio and announce the Silicon Heartland beginning, today ends the Rust Belt. Today begins the Silicon Heartland. These are proud moments for our nation. Pat, you've mentioned a lot about the industrial policy. I, I, I'm guessing, not naively, there is a large portion <clears throat> that is our geopolitical security. I mean, you know, having, having knowledge that we all have that the next wars will be cyber wars and that you know, there's a tremendous amount of cyber insecurity that's happening on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. What would you like our viewers and listeners to know about how this puts America perhaps back in firmer ground in terms of the security over all of the hardware that goes into everything we do and own? Yeah, you know, and I like to think about it in three dimensions. One is, you know, this is economic. You know, this makes sense, right? You know, when, uh, you know, manufacturing, you know, auto manufacturing lines were uh, stopped uh, because of, uh, you know, $2 components, a $30,000 car couldn't be completed. You know, it's like, wow, you know, we don't have resilient supply chains. And I call it going from just in time to just in case, where we need to build more resilience in the supply chains for our economic security. You know, also, these are great jobs, right? It's not like these are bad jobs in any way. You know, and for every job in manufacturing and semiconductors that we create uh, in the U.S., our data shows that we create seven to ten permanent jobs. You know, jobs in supply chain, jobs for teachers, police, you know, hospitals. I mean, these are this is an extraordinary benefit uh, across the uh, full spectrum of, you know, entry-level workers all the way up to the top-level PhDs. These are great manufacturing jobs. But maybe most importantly is national security. And, uh, you know, for, you know, our uh, national defense systems, you know, these are capabilities that uh, we want to be friend short or near short. Similarly, the Europeans need them friend short or near short uh, as well. We need a balanced, resilient uh, supply chain for all three of these uh, reasons as we look to the future. Pat, all politics aside, you are privileged to serve on President Biden's Council of Advisors, Advisors on Science and Technology. I've seen you on television countless times over the last year, and I've been looking forward to this interview. Uh, 
what would you like American citizens to know about our government's intent and success or failure around our progression as a competitive uh, supplier of technology, consumer, what, our, what our, our defenses look like? Take it wherever you'd like to go as you know, apolitically as possible. Yeah, and you know, to some degree, you know, independent of R's and D's, you know, what we've seen is is that our national investments in R and D have been on the declining path for fifty years, and until the Chips and Science Act and the IRA uh, 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 passages occurred, you know, those were the first meaningful steps to reverse that trend. And let's say independent of R's and D's, it's been declining. This is a major step to rebuild, and you know almost every one of the technologies that we position uh, participate in today in a fundamental way, whether that's AI, whether that's uh, uh, internet, uh, whether that's uh, communications technologies, bears its beginning to you know industrial policy related long term uh, investments that were occurred at the national level. So I'm encouraged by that. And the fact that I got to have a role in helping to bring those upon, uh, about as a proud moment uh, for me. You know, secondly, you know, as, as we think about uh, these uh, uh, investments for the long term, you know, we have a superior system. Right. And, you know, the ability for this creative chaos that our universities enable or our democratic liberal society enables, you know, has proven. You know, there were some that said, hey, we're going to lose the AI race uh, because China has more data. Hasn't turned out to be the case. Right. Because we have more ideas. Right. We have a lot of data. We have more compute power and we have the best ideas. You know, and fostering that ability for creative, you know, society for the future, right? As the leadership in ideas becomes you know, the leadership of the world and the world economy. So, you know, I do think that uh, you know, really understanding the power of our system and why you know it does enable us to be a leader for the long term. Also, you know, in it, you know, these are these are topics that you know, when you know, you travel globally. You know, the role that we play as a nation, you know, to me, we must be participating with our natural allies around the world. You know, we can't be, you know, the arrogant Americans that only consider their, you know, interest and everybody else will follow. You know, we need to be engaged with the global community. We have natural allies in Europe and in Asia. We need to lean into those partnerships at scale, you know, so that our policies are effective at scale. Otherwise, we just punish you know, U.S. companies when we set unilateral policies that you know, aren't supported by our natural democratic liberal allies around the world. And with those in mind, I think we've made a lot of progress. And again, you know, not Republican, not Democrat, but if you just look at it, the last couple of years you know, has enabled us to re-engage with the world. And I think that uh, rebuilding of our global reputation is critical for our tomorrow. Beautifully said. Pat, let's rewind back to your career a bit. I think you said that your first stint was three decades at Intel. And then I think you said yeah. you were forced out. I don't know the circumstances. You went on to two industry leaders, VMware and others, somewhat competitors, and then you came back. And I'd like to know, what is the lesson learned about how you manage your reputation, your character, your competence, your brand? What, what, what did you do right? 
that enabled you to return to the company you were, in essence, kicked out of for 30 years, and now you are back as the CEO, arguably one of the leading software hardware minds of our, our, of our economy. What did you do right? Yeah, maybe just fill in a little bit of the story too, Scott, because, you know, early in my career, you know, I had written a book called, you know, The Juggling Act. And in it, I wrote my personal mission statement, you know, and published it, you know, and one of the items was become CEO of Intel. And, you know, that became sort of the driving force. So, you know, for 20 plus years, you know, I was saying, you know, as I watched the CEOs and I watched the trinity of Intel, as I call it, Robert Noyce, the co-inventor of the integrated circuit, Gordon Moore, Moore's Law, you know, Andy Grove, the seminal leader of uh, semiconductors. You know, as I saw each of them, was I good enough to say what they said? Was I smart enough? You know, did I have the right, you know, education, skills, et cetera? It was this driving force that made me better. And then when I was pushed out of Intel, I was devastated because my dream was dead, right? And, you know, with that, you know, are those moments of career failure, do they become moments that crush you or do they become moments of great learning, right? Character development. And, you know, that 11 years outside of Intel, which curiously uh, was like exactly the same amount of time that Steve Jobs was outside of that, right? It's like, okay, God needed to humble me. God needed to put things into my character that weren't there before, right? And with that, you know, embracing that period of learning to make myself better. You know, not that I expected to come back to Intel. You know, the first couple of years I was gone, I was really remorseful about that. But then it's like, okay, I'm on a new journey now. And I was fully embracing that, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the great uh, examples of that was, you know, I was voted by Glassdoor to be the number one uh, CEO in the industry in 2000, right, and uh, 19. I was like, wow, you know, you know, I'm a good CEO, right, at that point, you know, building, I'll say, character-driven organizations, you know, financial success, et cetera, you know, and my own skills, but also becoming, you know, I'll say, you know, very, uh, you know, humble in uh, aspects of uh, leadership and with that you know touching many people along the way viewing my role as what i like to call the workplace minister right the workplace is my ministry you know and how can i be you know a successful leader in company but also being able to touch lives for eternity on the way to develop leaders that come into their own uh, capacity and then that it's not i say about protecting your personal brand it's about doing the right thing, right? If you're doing the right thing, your personal brand will follow uh, as well. But every day, am I doing the right thing, you know, for the company, for the employees, for the uh, industry? And if you do that every day, you know, you put God in the throne each day, guess what? By the end of, uh, you know, a decade of, uh, you know, time away, you know, I've grown into a much better leader as a result. When you left Intel, did you envision a day where you might return as the CEO or you knew you would not? You know, the the first couple of years, I, I used to joke that I, you know, I uh, did the Intel bong for the first two years before I went to bed. You know, but dun, 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 you know, I was like, you know, wow, you know, it was so, you know, it just anguished me. And then the vision died. It's like. I'm not going back. They've picked other CEOs. They've gone in the different uh, course, you know, from the one that I wanted would want to have taken them upon uh, for. And then, you know, they landed in a mud hole. 
and uh, you know needed a very different uh, path. And when they called me about, you know, it wasn't even that they asked me to become the CEO. They said, "Would you consider joining the board of directors?" So I spent uh, a month, you know, interviewing to join the board, and then they said, "Would you consider coming back as the CEO?" And then for three weeks, my wife and I just went through anguish. Right? Is the dream alive again? Do I want to go back and do it again? I promised her that I'd retire, right, uh, a, a couple of years earlier for her birthday present, and in fact, uh, oh, I can't find it here really quick. I have her retirement certificate, you know, <laughs> that she gave back to me after when we took the job, and she said, you know, now I want a new birthday present, right? You know, since uh, retirement wasn't in the offing, and you know, this is a big. Heavy job that's、yeah. going to take a number of years to complete, but you know, with that, you know, it you know it revitalized what was the dream, and I think often, you know, as leaders, you know, the idea of a death of a vision is a very hard thing, but when you get comfortable with it and the vision reemerges, now you know it's from God, right? Remember Moses, right? You know, he, you know, hey, I'm going to save my people, and then he went forty years in the desert, right? You know. Right. There's a lot of maturing that happens when that occurs, and I definitely see how you know I, I changed as a leader in that process, and I come back now, you know, fully confident, you know, that this is where God wants me to be for this phase of my career journey. Pat, we have、uh, just a few minutes left. I want to ask you a couple of questions. You recently said in an interview with the New York Times that every day the job is bigger than me. No doubt, something every CEO feels, but few say. How do you approach leadership, knowing that the job is bigger than you every day? <laughs> so you know, maybe I'll tell you a fun, a fun little story, Scott. You know, when we were in the middle of the Chips Act,、um, I was、uh, right, you know, burning shoe leather on、uh, Capitol Hill, meeting with congressional leaders, you know, senators, and you know, you know, uh, uh, cabinet members, and so on. And there was a critical vote coming up. Uh, the next day, and I was in Mitch McConnell's office. You know who was, you know, then,、uh, you know, the、uh, minority leader, leader and、yeah. he needed sixty votes in the Senate. And if he didn't allow it procedurally to come to the floor, the Chips Act was dead. I had met with every senator. I was in his office. I was arguing the importance of it, and so on. And I had done everything I could. Right, so there was just nothing else that I knew I could possibly do. So when I went to bed that night, right, it's sort of like, okay, God, you know, every leader's heart is in your hands. If Mitch brings us to the Florida bar, your will was done, and if he doesn't, your will was done, right? And and I could take perfect satisfaction that you know I had done all I could, but this was now bigger than me. And you know, with that, I think you know every day as a leader, you know, there's always more that you can do as a CEO. Your job is never done. You know, there are always more things that you can be pouring yourself into. It's never done. But just have you prioritized things, right? Have you done your best job? You know, and with that, you can sleep well at night. I'm the father of three young boys. And you can't open a newspaper, a website, an RSS feed, a social media platform right now without hearing about AI and ChatGPT and machine learning and whatever it is. What skills do you want to make sure that my three sons, that are eight, eleven, and thirteen, develop in the next five to ten years, 
so that they have great careers, meaning they are gentlemen, they pay taxes, they save for retirement, they mm -hmm. have fun, they contribute, they learn intentionally. What skills do you want to make sure that my children master in the next five to 10 years? You know, I'd say there's, you know, th maybe, maybe three different answers uh, to that question. The first one is we used to, you know, say, hey, everybody needs to, you know, in school learn to read, write, and arithmetic. Today it's read, write, code, and arithmetic, right? You know, right? And the ability to have, you know, also say fundamental competence is valuable in every field. Can you write code, right? Are you in a position that you, you know, are able to demonstrate computer literacy to the point that, yeah, I can, I can spin up a data model. I can put my app on, you know, the uh, app store. I can, in fact, uh, you know, be able to access uh, APIs in the cloud. These should be skills that every kid has uh, today. You know, secondly, you want to teach them the value of work, right? You know, why am I successful today? A lot of it's because I worked on the farm. Right. And, you know, the idea of a day of labor that I was, you know, not worried about getting, you know, kicked by a horse or bitten by a cow or covered in hay dirt. You know, now I respect and honor, you know, the value of work. Right. And I'd say second is, you know, our kids need to value work. And, you know, third, you know, as they went, you know, they need to be citizens of the world. You know, they need to respect the extraordinary privileged position that we have. You know, get them to go be a missionary in some location, you know, to see that they are in this extraordinary position that we have in the United States. You know, the responsibility that we have to the world, the opportunity, you know, that we have to be ambassadors, right, you know, of uh, both Christ as well as of, you know, the uh, American ideals, you know, they should feel that deep in their souls. And if we all create our kids with those three things in mind, the skills that they need, you know, the value and character of work, right, and the you know, great privilege that they have, they're going to be good. Pat, you were raised in a farming community in Pennsylvania with, I'm sure, surrounded by both Amish and Mennonite families <clears throat> and that, that influence. How much of that upbringing influenced the way you lead today at Intel? Oh, you know, it's a, it's a big piece. And I'll tell you, you know, I love people on my leadership team, you know, that come from humble origins, you know, because they just have, you know, a deeper sense of the value of what we do, right, and the benefits uh, to the world. You know, one of my leaders, you know, he's an Iranian refugee who, you know, his family left, you know, right before the Iranian revolution. And, you know, another one on the uh, uh, leadership team is an Irish farm girl, right, you know, much like me, you know, as well. You know, people who had to earn their positions, right, uh, in the world and have, you know, I'll say, you know, respect and honor, you know, for the, uh, you know, extraordinary privileged positions that we uh, uh, have. And clearly in my communication, you know, uh, some might view me, you know, a little bit uh, too Christian. Some might view me a little too folksy, uh, you know, and farm boy. You know, but that's who I am uh, for it. And as I say, you know, in this world of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, 
you're bringing your whole self to the workplace is what it's all about. And with that, hey, this is who I am. You know, I'm a faithful leader. You know, I'm a farm boy, a leader. I'm passionate about uh, technology. And I want to be part of a company, you know, that's shaping technology as a force for good. You know, that we're improving the lives of every human on the planet. That's a unique opportunity that I have as a technology leader in the world today. And I'm honored to have that position. Pat, last minute of our time. I'm guessing that your real legacy will be written 35, 40 years from now when the U.S. has fully reintegrated the chip manufacturing, maybe not fully, but the dream, the vision has been accomplished. Is that directionally accurate? And how do you feel about your contribution to that? Well, you know, in some ways, hey, that's one of the things I hope to accomplish over the next decade or so. Right, is clearly drawing that. You know, also, hey, I'll have worked on technologies that touch every person on the planet. You know, things like USB, Wi-Fi, microprocessors. These things are global technologies that are changing lives. You know, but also, I'm a Christian, right? And uh, hey, I want to touch as many lives for eternity as uh, uh, possible. And uh, with it, you know, Linda and I have a number. My wife Linda and I, you know, have a number of philanthropic uh, efforts that, you know, hey, I hope outlast me by many decades. The impact that they're having on schools and kids being lifted uh, out of poverty, on churches being planted, churches' use of you know technologies transforming the uh, Bay Area, you know some of those that we've been involved in. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I just want to hear the words, you know, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Nicely said. My boys are already irritated that their basketball time is going to be replaced at um, coding camp this summer. But I appreciate that. And they will, too, someday. Pat Gelsinger, CEO of Intel, thank you for your time today. Thank you, sir. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.